Good afternoon. Hello. I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thank you all for coming today. Uh, I want to also thank our conference staff here at Cato who help us put on uh, so many terrific events. Thanks also to those of you watching on Cato.org. Um, the event today is called uh, uh, Strategy Not Math. And in November 2010, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates complained that the military cuts outlined by the Bowles-Simpson Deficit Reduction Commission were exercises in math, not strategy. Uh, so it's my pleasure to host a discussion today uh, of three high-profile studies that have done the opposite. They focus on revisiting some of the Pentagon's roles and missions following especially the end of the war in Iraq and the drawdown in Afghanistan and documented the savings that would result uh, from such changes. And although these reports differ on some particulars, including on the military's core missions and the force structure that those missions require, they agree that change is needed. Uh, wise strategists must recognize the new fiscal reality and adapt uh, to choose to adapt as opposed to having the hard choices forced upon them. So let me introduce our three speakers in the order that they will speak. The first is Barry Blackman. He's the co-founder of the Stimson Center and a distinguished fellow uh, focused on nuclear disarmament. He's an expert on political and military policies, military strategy, defense budgets, and industries. He was chair of Stimson's board from 1989 to 2007. He has nearly 50 years of distinguished service in national security in both the public and private sectors. Dr. Blackman founded DFI International, a research consultancy in 1984, and served as its CEO until 2007. He has also worked in the departments of state and defense and at the Office of Management and Budget. Among other boards and commissions, Blackman served on the commission to assess the ballistic missile threat in 1998 and 99, the Defense Policy Board from 2002 to 2006, and the Department of State Advisory Committee on Transformational Diplomacy from 2005 to 2008. Dr. Blackman holds a PhD in international relations from Georgetown University and has taught at several universities, including Johns Hopkins, Sice, and Georgetown. Our, our second speaker is Jacob Stokes. He's a research associate at the Center for a New American Security, where his research focuses on U.S. national security strategy and defense policy. Jake's writing has appeared in Foreign Policy, the Christian Science Monitor, CNN.com, Business Week, and uh, other publications. And he's been quoted in a variety of national publications, including the Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, and others. Prior to joining CNAS, uh, Jake served as a policy analyst at the National Security Network. Uh, where his work focused on the rise of China, defense budgeting and strategy, and Afghanistan. And he previously held internships with the Center for American Progress and Democracy and Freedom House. He graduated from the University of Missouri with degrees in political science and journalism. And our third speaker today is Steve Ellis, Vice President at Taxpayers for Common Sense. Steve joined TCS in 1999. He oversees programs and serves uh, as a leading media and legislative spokesperson persistent critic of the mounting budget deficit and federal fiscal policy. Steve has testified before numerous congressional committees and has appeared on national network news programs, all the ones you'd imagine, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, uh, CNN, uh, No Telemundo? Is that, uh, no? <laughs> no, you got to get I'm that on your list here, Steve, I'm telling you. That's uh, a goal. <laughs> that's a goal, all right. Uh, his expertise ranges from earmarks to flood insurance and a lot of spending issues in between. I learned that you had done some work with my colleague Sally James on the farm Bill. So yeah. Sally sends her greetings, Steve. 
Steve formerly served as an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard for six years, including tours of duty as a department head and deck watch officer aboard the, USS Co the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter, Sorrel, managing the Coast Guard's inland waterway fleet and managing a small boat acquisition contract. He received a BS in government from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, and he earned the Coast Guard Commendation Medal and the Coast Guard Achievement Medal. So with that, Barry, the podium and uh, the projector are all yours. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. Um, pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming. I want to uh, essentially uh, summarize a report which uh, the Stimson Center organized for the Peterson Foundation. We were asked to Put, bring together a group of experienced people to look at the question of uh, U.S. military strategy, what strategy uh, the U.S. should pursue looking ahead 10, 20 years, and then to test that strategy at different budgetary levels and see what implications there might be for forces and, and acquisition uh, programs. So this was a top-down, strategy-driven uh, study. Here's the group of people uh, that worked on it. Uh, it was a diverse group, Republicans and Democrats, uh, former military and former diplomats, someone from OMB, uh, business people and academics. And the fact that this diverse group was able to reach a consensus, I think, is important in itself, uh, important for the ongoing national debate on defense. We started by looking at the national security environment uh, and the challenges that might be posed from that environment for U.S. interests. Um, we divided U.S. interests into those we called vital, protecting U.S. homeland, protecting U.S. allies, protecting the global commons, and those other interests which we considered conditional, interests which depend more on the circumstances of the time, things like um, internal conflicts in countries which might uh, result in threats emerging to the U.S., things like um, genocide going on in different countries or uh, violent dictators doing horrible things to, to their own people. We considered those conditional and uh, whether the U.S. should act militarily in them would depend on a whole range of factors, uh, including what the neighboring states thought, what our allies thought and were willing to do, what else we were involved in at the time, and so forth. In terms of uh, the threats, the group was generally uh, less concerned about Russia than one often reads in, say, Defense Department. Uh, documents. They thought that while neither friend nor foe, uh, Russia's military capabilities are limited and will remain limited uh, for quite some time relative to our own. They were ambivalent about China. They see the possibility of China emerging as a more nationalistic country determined to exert control in its own region, a sort of Monroe Doctrine uh, 
approach to the East-South China Seas, which obviously would cause trouble for our allies and therefore for us, uh, to say nothing about the more immediate conflicts over various islands and rocks and so forth in that region. But they also recognize that we in China have many interests in common, economic interests and political interests, and predicting which will dominate and whether the relationship will develop in a more cooperative or more hostile way is just impossible to tell. So the advice is to hedge against that, but don't hedge so much that it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then we looked at this huge unstable region from Central and South Asia through the Middle East and into much of Africa uh, throughout the Sahel. And in this region, um, we see uh, problems, but problems that have to be managed and cannot be solved. That is, uh, if you take Syria, yes, uh, terrorist threats can emerge from Syria. If some of the more radical groups were to gain control, Syria's chemical weapons could fall into the wrong hands. But these are specific issues that should be dealt with with military force uh, in, discrete, in the discrete use of force, that we should not prepare to go into Syria to take it over, turn it into a replica of uh, Massachusetts or something, and try to exert governance uh, over it. That's an important distinction we made, uh, managing problems rather than trying to resolve them. We then looked at the history of uh, U.S. military involvements over the past 20 years, or essentially since the end of the Cold War. We think it's very important to learn from this experience. And what you see is that the taxpayers' investments in defense, which have risen considerably over the last 10 years, quite apart from the cost of the war, have paid off. And we have military capabilities now that were only dreamt of 20 years ago in terms of situational awareness, the flexibility and agility of our forces, their reach, their lethality, their precision. It gives us the capability to reach out promptly to, to ascertain dangers, promptly to reach out and deal with those uh, dangers quite uh, flexibly and quite um, capably. But obviously our forces are not omnipotent and some challenges which we have tried to solve clearly are uh, too difficult. It's not a question of um, uh, that the, the military has done things wrong. The, the problem or the challenge of providing good governance and security and democratic values in societies that are riven by ancient conflicts and that don't share our values and, in fact, might be quite hostile to our values is just too difficult. And it's not a problem for which the military is particularly uh, well-suited. So as a result, um, we recommend a new defense strategy that takes advantage of our capabilities and tries to avoid those challenges which are uh, too, di too, too difficult. 
and perhaps we could describe the strategy best through operating its operating principles. And we have 10 principles. So I'll come back to the first two um, in a moment. Uh, but principles three through five listed here are the heart of the strategy that one, we should maintain our space, air, and naval superiority uh, and make sure we stay ahead of any potential adversary in this regard so that we continue to have access and reach and the ability to go in and deal with threats. Uh, special operations forces need to be maintained at a, a very advanced uh, stage for various reasons. And in R&D, we recommend a shift uh, from, you know, the R&D budget is large, but much of it is in um, what's called advanced development. A lot of that is actually procurement. And we think it would be more important to uh, shift funds from marginal improvements to current systems to more far-reaching capabilities. So we put more emphasis on uh, science and technology and more basic uh, research and development than you see in, in the current budget. Uh, the other five uh, principles, we think we should continue working with allies and trying to exercise uh, global leadership. Um, uh, but we would put more emphasis on ensuring or trying to ensure that these countries contribute a proportionate share to the cost of these defense preparations. We think over time, as political circumstances make feasible, we should move away from a large overseas infrastructure, fixed overstructure, replacing it with the rotational deployments of, of forces based in the U.S., the sort of thing uh, the Marines are doing, pulling some forces out of Okinawa, replacing them with rotational deployments to Australia and Guam and perhaps other uh, islands in the Pacific. Permanent bases are um, lightning rods, uh, particularly in some parts of the region. There are local issues quite often. Uh, but more importantly, in places like the Middle East, they're used to rally support against the U.S., uh, where they're seen as um, the intrusion of, of foreign culture. So we certainly would not like to see the development of major infrastructure in the Middle East. Um, and uh, we think we can make reductions in uh, current plans for uh, the number of people based uh, in Europe. In Asia, we'd go slower because of the East Asia because of the uncertainty uh, concerning China. Uh, the eighth principle is, um, you know, kind of a no-brainer at this point. Um, and, of course, this has been said before. We should not get involved in protracted ground wars, but uh, somehow politicians continue to do that, uh, we try to hedge against those possibilities by uh, maintaining uh, doctrine, doctrines and training in the various military schools and maintaining capabilities in reserve forces 
for the contingencies in which we do get involved in protracted wars. However, we do think that when ground forces go into a region, they should go in for a very distinct objective and that we leadership needs to have the leadership to, uh, needs to have the discipline to stick to that objective and not get drawn into a broader mission. So the model here is the first Gulf War, where we went in throughout the Kuwaitis, did not get drawn into the bigger mission of, of getting rid of Saddam Hussein, rather than what happened in Lebanon, where we got drawn into the Civil War for a while, uh, or in Afghanistan, where the mission changed uh, quite substantially. So. Um, the ninth and 10th concern uh, the strategic forces. We think uh, the size of the nuclear forces could be reduced, and we would trade off resources devoted to nuclear modernization, particularly uh, for those kinds of forces which are more useful, particularly maintaining our conventional advantages. And uh, in terms of defenses, we think that the theater defenses are quite promising and should be continued to be developed, but that we don't see the technologies mature enough to provide effective CONUS defenses, so we would step back and continue developing technology, but not rush into deployments of systems which are unlikely to be effective against uh, serious ICBM effects. We then looked at the possibility of efficiencies in the way the Defense Department does its business. Everyone knows they could be more efficient. We didn't do any original research. We just put together all the recommendations that have been made by the hundreds of official commissions and bodies and agencies and uh, experts, you know, going back to uh, the Packard uh, Commission. And if you add them all up, it comes to about $900 billion over 10 years in potential savings. We don't think that's uh, possible. Uh, half of that comes from utilizing manpower more efficiently, the rest from compensation changes, reforms, and acquisition reforms. Uh, but in our, when we looked at budgets, we assumed uh, two scenarios, one that 40% of these savings were pocketed and the other that 20%. 20% should be possible, certainly. Uh, one out of every five efficiency, and particularly in the face of budgetary issues, um, budgetary pressures, it should be possible to overcome the bureaucratic and political opposition to bring in some of these um, savings. So we then tested the strategy in four budget levels. The top is uh, keeping defense uh, even with inflation. The second line is the uh, uh, president's FY13 budget. This study was done in the fall. This might be a little out of date now. The third line is what we called smooth sequester. We were optimistic enough that there was still some reason left in Washington, sequester wouldn't happen, but we took the cuts mandated by sequester, but smoothed it 
over the 10-year period in a more rational manner. And then the bottom line is the smooth sequester is about a 10% reduction from the president's 13 budget. Uh, the bottom line is um, consistent with the size drawdowns we did after Vietnam and after the Cold War. It's about a 15% reduction. Um, and as I said, we then uh, made the alternative assumptions about the uh, uh, efficiency savings. So the re group did not recommend a specific budget, but at any budget level, the strategy suggests priorities uh, rather than specific forces, and these are listed here, a high priority on, on the um, left. I guess, um, particularly um, uh, special ops and cyber, basic and applied research, classified funding costs. We assume that's where the good stuff is, the most advanced <laughs> thing. We hope that assumption is correct. Um, uh, we're keep the Navy force structure as is now planned and uh, put some money into the rotational deployments. The lower priority, uh, we can make reductions in ground forces, particularly if we're not gonna fight protracted ground wars. In our lowest uh, budget, we go down to 30 BCTs from the current 42. And I think the Army now is calling, uh, I think Dempsey said 32. BCT, so we're not far off there. We cut the Marines in the lowest budget to about 150,000 from the current 180,000. Um, in the nuclear forces, in the lowest budget, we go down to a force of 10 submarines, 300 ICBMs, and the, the existing uh, bomber force. So, <clears throat> close with. Uh, um, the, you know, obviously the more we spend on defense, the more hedges there are against the uncertainties in the world, but the group did conclude that um, with this strategy we could protect uh, U.S. interests with acceptable risk in all the budget scenarios. Um, and they have these two overriding concerns, you know, it may be as as um, optimistic as the thought that certainly they wouldn't do the sequester. Uh, <laughs> but perhaps the bottom one is the most important point, and this was a plea, particularly from our military people, let's not pretend we have a larger force structure than we can afford, but rather um, you know, cut the forces as necessary and uh, give them the capabilities they need so they can operate effectively. Thank you very right, much. Thank you, Barry. Jake? <clears throat> uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's, uh, it's great to be here at the Cato Institute and uh, really an honor uh, to be among such uh, distinguished company on the stage. Uh, let me first give a quick thanks uh, to Chris and to Cato for hosting this event, um, as well as to my fellow panelists. Um, and thank you all in the audience and, and online for your interest in this topic. Uh, Barry, those are really insightful comments. Thanks. And Steve, I look forward to your uh, hearing your presentation. 
Um, I'm here today uh, to present the work of myself and my colleagues at the Center for New American Security, in particular, General Dave Barno and Dr. Dor Nora Bensahel. CNAS has written a series of reports looking at defense strategy in an age of austerity. I'll go through them all quickly as they touch on the broader subject at hand, how to craft defense strategy in an age of tight budgets. Shortly after the, President Obama signed the Budget Control Act in uh, August 2011, CNAS got a grant from the Smith Richardson Foundation to look at US defense strategy in a time of austerity. Our team at the center wrote our first report in October 2011. This report is called Hard Choices, Responsible Defense in an Age of Austerity. Mine's an old copy, you see it's falling apart. <laughs> um, Doggy, uh, there's a few copies in the back, and, and you can also find it online at cnas.org slash hard choices. The concept behind hard choices was to basically to translate budget, uh, what budget cuts would look like uh, at different sizes in terms of end strength, force structure, procurement, and overhead. At the time, analysts and, and folks on all sides of the debate were really throwing around a lot of numbers and assertions. So what CNS wanted to do was to put some meat on these numbers and describe what the, the hard choices actually look like in, in terms of specific numbers and details. Um, hard choices lays out specifically four scenarios. Each is based on a different level of funding and explores the viability of what we call a US global engagement strategy in each budget scenario. A couple of technical notes real quick for the budget folks. Uh, the numbers attached to each scenario, if you look at it, are calculated from a different baseline than is commonly used in the public discussion today. Uh, to simplify it, just note that the lowest funding level um, represents um, uh, sequestration level cuts, or about a trillion dollars over 10 years. And the highest funding scenario represents cuts equal to the first tranche of the Budget Control Act, or about $487 billion cuts. In, uh, over 10 years. There are also two scenarios that we lay out in between. Um, also, our calculations, and this is important, assume no saving from reforming military pay, benefits, and retirement, despite the rapidly rising costs. My colleagues at the time uh, judged that, it's, uh, that although it's essential to reform personnel, and I'll, I'll go through some more details on that later, the issue is politically unlikely to change, and therefore policymakers, especially at the time, needed to understand what budget scenarios looked like before the reforms, if there were going to be any. So that's the math. Now the strategy. Hard Choices argues that the United States should pursue the global engagement strategy that it's been more or less successful with since World War II, but that it should pursue it in a different way. A new approach should prioritize, first and foremost, Asia Pacific and the Indian Ocean regions, followed in close second by the Middle East. We argue that the US should remain engaged in South and Central Asia, but in a much more limited way. Finally, in terms of geography, we argue that the US should consider Europe a tertiary priority, while in Africa and Latin America, we should focus only on deterring and addressing specific threats. With our regional focus properly calibrated, our four structure recommendations then flow from the, four, uh, the following four guiding principles. The first is that naval and air forces will grow increasingly important in the future strategic environment. Second, the US military should strive to increase interdependence across the four services and to strengthen the continuum of service between active and reserve forces. Third, the US military should generate requirements for new weapon systems based only on realistic assessments of likely threats, 
not the pursuit of maximist capabilities. Fourth, in the absence of major near-term threats, the Pentagon should pursue research and development to, bridge, uh, to create a bridge between current weapon systems and highly capable future systems. With this recommendation, we specifically say that the default model for acquisition dilemmas facing the services should be to accept higher risk absent a proximate short-term threat and invest more in targeted threat-focused research and development programs over the long term. So those are the big principles that undergird our four specific scenarios. Without implying causation, those recommendations were um, all echoed in the, def the defense strategic guidance released by the administration three months later in January of 2012. What CNA has found with hard choices was that America's current strategy, what we call a global engagement strategy, would really be put at risk if total defense cuts exceeded the equivalent of 600 to $650 billion over 10 years, or about 100 to 200 billion uh, beyond the first set of cuts. Of course, those cuts have already been made. Uh, sequestration cuts an additional about $500 billion in defense budgets over the next decade, equaling about a trillion over 10 years. Those things said, it's important to note, and we do note in the paper, uh, that this judgment will ch is subject to change if policymakers are able to generate savings by reforming military pay and benefits for future service members. So that was the first report. The second report CNS wrote on this topic of defense strategy in an age of austerity was called Sustainable Preeminence, Reforming the milita U.S. Military at a Time of Strategic Change. This report looks, um, looked at how to restructure the military, both from a whole of DOD perspective, but it also gave recommendations for each of the services and the special forces. Its recommendations, such as moving from six combatant commands to four and increasing joint integration, are really more operational than strategic, so I'll spend less time on them here. But if you're interested sort of in the details of how, especially when it comes to the services, uh, it can probably be a good resource for you. Finally, while our past work is focused on big strategic issues, my colleagues and I at CNAS are currently focusing our attention on the dire need for management reforms within the Defense Department in order to be able to execute any US defense strategy over the long haul. In our view, mundane management decisions, most of which, frankly, many defense analysts find downright boring and have been often ignored, have risen to the level of strategic importance. The de decreasing buying power of the defense dollar has reached emergency levels. We've arrived at what, what might be called a burning platform moment, a situation so dire that we should consider radical adjustments to our normal ways of doing business in order to ensure the effectiveness of the Defense Department over the long term, especially now that budgets are going down. With apologies to the new pope, uh, my colleagues and I have taken to describing the big problems facing DOD today as the seven deadly sins of defense management. These include rapidly expanding pay and benefits costs, skyrocketing military health care costs, excess infrastructure and basing, acquisitions processes that fail to deliver on realistic timelines and at an affordable cost, a bloated civilian workforce abetted by too many layers of bureaucracy and too much overhead, growing operations and maintenance costs, including a proliferation of contractors, and finally, the lack of a process for creative destruction that can phase out offices and programs that are no longer vital to the defense enterprise. We're still working on that paper. It's due out in June, so I won't give it all away. Uh, but let me offer you a few illustrative statistics to give you a sense of why we think this platform, as it were, is on fire. 
On personnel, the cost of military pay and, and allowances, along with those for military health care, make up about one-third of the department's budget and have grown rapidly in recent years, uh, up almost 90% since 2001, while active duty end strength has grown by less than 3%. Those costs are on pace to take up the entire defense budget by 2039. On acquisitions in the last 10 years, DOD has walked away from something like $50 billion in weapons that either did not work or were overtaken by newer requirements. That's equivalent to nearly three years of shipbuilding budgets at current rates. On civilian workforce bloat, over the past decade, the number of DOD civilians has increased by more than 100,000 to almost 778,000 um, in 2010. And on a lack of creative destruction, GAO found that 45 different organizations um, uh, fund programs to undertake uh, to deal with IEDs. Um, finally, on uh, ballooning operations and maintenance costs, the Pentagon doesn't know exactly how many contractors it employs, but in 2010, Deputy Secretary Ash Carter signed out a document that pegs the number of contractors at approximately 766,000 at a cost of $155 billion per year. In other words, that's nearly uh, the size of the total DOD civilian workforce. As we started to look into these issues, we were struck by the need for attention to them regardless of budget reductions. In other words, we'd have to deal with these issues even if sequestration wasn't happening. They just become that much more imperative under the current budgetary situation. Many of these changes require authorizations and cooperation from Congress, which of course won't be easy in this political climate. Although this really should not be a partisan issue, whatever one thinks we should spend on defense, all should be able to agree to spend the money in the most effective way possible. To paraphrase Rahm Emanuel, let's not let a crisis go to waste. With an updated approach to the world following a decade plus of conflict, we should also create an updated approach to managing DOD. Both can work well to achieve the fundamental goal here, ensuring the national, US national security at a reasonable cost. Before I wrap it up, I'll note that the idea behind this panel is a very sound one. Uh, there's a grow, there really is a growing consensus about the type of changes that are needed to have an effective US defense strategy, even in times of budget austerity. I find it encouraging that we saw many of the themes in the, in the reports from all the organizations represented on the stage uh, and the administration's defense strategic guidance um, and I think we're likely to see many of them repeated in the upcoming quadrennial defense review slated to come out in February of 2014. Instead of debating where to go, we can now debate about how to get there. With that, I'll wrap it up. Thank you, and I look forward to the discussion. <coughs> Thank you, Jake. See? Sure. Can't really borrow your color. Okay, yeah, thanks. Good afternoon. Uh, Thanks, Chris, for the kind introduction, and I want to thank you and Cato for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, as I was noting to Chris behind the, uh, or before we came out here, I really appreciate the brand control, you know, the big Cato behind my head and Cato <laughs> right here. And then I noticed they won't even share this dais with Deer Park. They ripped the, the labels <laughs> off as well. So, uh, could or maybe be, it's could the, be Poland maybe, Spring. You don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, more, more likely it's Costco. But, um, so uh, I am Steve Ellis, Vice President of Taxpayers Common Sense. I've been at TCS for 13 years, and from our very inception 18 years ago, TCS has worked on Pentagon spending issues. And I've paid attention to them as well, not just in my job, but both as the son of a retired naval officer and a former Coast Guard officer. In fact, my academy classmates were able to start retiring a couple years ago, which was very sobering to me. 
Um, but more on that issue later. Uh, not necessarily about the sobering part, but anyway. Uh, we strongly believe in having the numbers and making thoughtful budget recommendations rather than blithely throwing around numbers. In, ha in having facts uh, and making thoughtful budget recommendations rather than blindly throwing around numbers. To that end, we partnered with our good friends at the Project on Government Oversight to release Spending Even Less, Spending Even Smarter, the cleverly named sequel to Spending Less, Spending Smarter. <laughs> this report was a comprehensive collection of recommendations to, on how to save nearly $700 billion over the next decade across the traditional national security agencies, which include the Defense Department and the National Nuclear Security Agency. The report was intended as a list of cuts we could make without requiring major change in national security, since we believe our national debt and deficit problems are so pressing that they constitute an immediate threat. Yet that simple position is a departure from current national security doctrine, which holds that resources have no place in planning for the future. We vigorously oppose that point of view. And so do several recent uh, Deputy Secretaries of Defense who wrote new Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. They argued for an approach akin to the late Defense Secretary Les Aspen's bottom-up review. While one can and should quibble with that review and its outcomes, now as it was then, it is time to reassess defense posture and strategy, not only because the wars of the last decade are winding down, but also because, as the defense, uh, Deputy Defense Secretary said in her letter, quote, the long-term federal budget outlook indicates the direction of change. Force structure reductions, fewer and less lengthy overseas deployments, reduced research and development and procurement levels, and thus a slower rate of modernization of military equipment and systems. In short, they indicated that, quote, resources needed to pay for the posture must be determined. This approach is a major departure from the existing doctrine that military strategy must be formed independently, completely independent of fiscal reality. That doctrine is enshrined in the Quadrennial Defense Review, the process created in 1997 to focus Pentagon thinking on our defense posture in relation to current themes, in relation to current threats. Though the original legislation stated the process must consider the budget, quote, required to provide sufficient resources to meet its goals, the language was amended 10 years later to say the process should not be constrained by budgets. As we have long argued, it's exactly that kind of thinking that landed the Pentagon in the situation it faces today. The former deputy secretaries included several principles in their missive to Secretary Hagel. More cannot be done with less. It will take time to realize savings. The hard choices should be made early. The new U.S. strategy should address the new key geopolitical threats and leverage unique U.S. military capabilities. In the long run, U.S. military superiority relies on technical technology dominance. The growth and cost of military compensation and benefits system must be brought under control and cooperation with allies will be even more important in the future. I think our report was very prescient in these regards. We do recommend hard choices. We do call for a greater burden sharing. We do want smart investments in technology, not just what used to be the hot item. And compensation and benefits must be reformed. We've, we focused on a variety of different programs, some that exist solely on the backs of the congressional champions, such as the M1 Abrams tank. Though the cost of such programs, $181 million billion in $181 million in FY13 for the Abrams may not sound like much in the grand scope of the defense budget, but as we've found in our work on earmarks that bringing attention to parochially motivated spending has a ripple effect that can save taxpayers billions over the long run. There are some recommendations in our report that do reflect strategic positions. The one that got the biggest reaction from the Armed Service Committee staffers is cutting aircraft carriers from 11 to 10 and Navy wings from 10 to 9, which would save $18.4 billion. 
These are all 10-year recommendations, by the way, 10-year uh, savings. Um, this recommendation actually appeared in the Congressional Budget Office March 2011 report on deficit-reducing budget options, so it wasn't like it just came from throwing darts on the wall. Here's the plan. The Navy currently has one fewer aircraft carriers than the rest of the world combined. It used to be more, but the Chinese got their new carrier, and I say it new like that because uh, when I saw the pictures, I saw the ski jump uh, on the bow, and I thought that it was, uh, oh, they took the Soviet style, you know, but then I realized, um, no, actually, it was a Soviet Hulk that they had bought and, <laughs> and were refurbishing and making, uh, so anyway, I digress. Uh, according to the CBO, the Navy could utilize 10 carriers instead of 11 because Recent experience suggests that the Navy mobilizes five to seven carriers to fight a major war, and the 10 carriers remaining in the fleet under this option would still provide a force of at least five or six carriers within 90 days to fight such a war. CBO estimates that about $7 billion can be saved by retiring the USS George Washington in 2016, prior to its going through its costly refueling and complex overhaul process, and accordingly reducing Navy force size by 5,600 sailors. According to the CBO, this option also eliminates the administrative structure of the air wing associated with the carrier, but keeps the planes and redeploys other ships in the carrier strike group to support other missions. For even further savings beyond $7 billion, these ships and planes could be retired out of service. The USS Nimitz, the oldest of the Nimitz-class carriers, was commissioned in 1975 and has a 50-year service life. It can thus remain operational until the mid-2020s. Or if it was a Coast Guard ship, it would probably be in the 2040s. <laughs> um, uh, the ship I served on was 50 years old when I served on it. Um, but anyway, again, I digress. Um, when the, uh, Chris is former Navy, so I have to kind of make those little jabs. Uh, when, the, when the Navy expects delivery of the, of the CVN-80, the third Ford-class aircraft carrier. However, the USS John F. Kennedy, the second of the Ford-class aircraft carriers, is scheduled to be procured prior to this. Decommissioning the Nimitz early simply to make room for the John F. Kennedy or, other, or, or having both carriers in the fleet simultaneously offers little additional security at considerable cost. If the Navy foregoes procurement of the John F. Kennedy, taxpayers would save $11.4 billion in procurement costs alone. To, altogether, taxpayers can save at least $18.4 billion while still maintaining a formidable 10-carrier fleet. Another recommendation that reflects a strategic shift would remove 40,000 troops from Europe. Downsizing our European footprint simply makes sense. We believe that they could be eliminated, the numbers could be limited, but some may redeploy in favor of our new Asian Pacific focus if that is what the review recommends. In that case, it would represent a responsible prioritization regarding threats and missions rather than trying to be everywhere and do everything at once. Similarly, while the B-61 warhead is not the most expensive national security program, our recommendation is to ask America's European partners to pay for its maintenance uh, reflects our belief that it's time for the U.S. taxpayers to stop footing the bill for the world's security. Several of our recommendations regard nuclear weapons for two reasons. One is that our military leaders, and as other panelists have stated, we can maintain an effective deterrence with far fewer weapons, which will save us money by reducing Cold War support system that has grown up around it. Second. The NNSA is one of the federal government's most inefficient agencies, regularly scoring a place on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list. Making an example of systemic government waste can have a ripple effect that spreads to other parts of government, saving taxpayers of money over time. So you could easily cancel facilities like the Y-12 Uranium Processing Facility, which has doubled in cost into $6.5 billion since 2011, and the Mixed Oxide Fuel Fabrication Facility, racking up another $5 billion. Years ago, I testified at a hearing on the F-22 co uh, Raptor cost overruns and problems. I vividly remember Congressman John Duncan, a Republican from Tennessee, remarking that sometimes instead of a Rolls-Royce, you have to settle for a Mercedes. 
So we could at least, even if we don't cancel the program outright, cancel this B and C variants of the F-35 and replace it with F-A-18s. The savings from that are just, from that alone, are in excess of $60 billion and could be far greater if the entire, pro if the whole program is, has been, will be scrapped. The F-35 has continued to spiral out of control and is getting greater and greater criticism from our, from our foreign allies who are being asked to purchase them. The last decade saw a dramatic increase in the number and cost of service contracts, which we've just been alluded to. While seductive, I know contracts and seductive don't necessarily go together, contracts actually often end up being more expensive than actually doing it in-house with, uh, with public sector employees. Our colleagues at POGO found that the billable rate for contractors were often twice as much as the cost of federal employees. Additionally, the growth of contracts has been coupled with reduced oversight and oversight personnel. Simply reducing national security service contracts by 15% could save $400 billion. Lastly, I benefited from military medicine as a dependent and a service member. After 23 years of service, my father has been retired from the Navy for 30 years, and my parents live, in part, on his retirement checks. It was the deal he made with the government when he was commissioned as an ensign in 1959. The country has to honor that deal. But there are ways to do that responsibly. After retirement, my father used the GI Bill to get a master's degree and worked for more than a decade at a Fortune 500 company, all the while using TRICARE, well, it's precursor actually, um, which in reality was a subsidy for the company that didn't have to pay for his and his family, like me, health care. Simply increasing premium and in creating other incentives that don't affect the availability of TRICARE for those who need it, but, all, but also don't subsidize business, would save as much as $100 billion without breaking that promise. That would be a small step one that Congress has repeatedly blocked. But the entire benefit system has to be reevaluated. We have to honor and take care of our veterans, but we do them no favors if the country they so valiantly defended is a fiscal basket case. I want to end with this uh, final thought that we, we try to talk about here. Spending more will not make us safer, but spending smarter will make us stronger. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank Cato and Chris for the opportunity, and I look forward to any questions. Thanks, Steve. Sure. <clears throat> Okay, thank you all very much. Uh, I should have held up. So yes, this is the, the, the Taxpayers for Common Sense and the Project on Government Oversight, spending even less, spending even smarter. And I have more copies here if people um, want it. This is the one, uh, Jake showed the Hard Choices Report. This is Sustainable Preeminence. You can see I've read it carefully and have things sticking out of it. And this is the Simpson Report. All three of these are available online. That's where I got them. Um, and so you can find them if... Uh, if you're interested in reading, they're all very well written and uh, very interesting. There are some interesting overlaps. I, I want to just take the moderator's privilege and just, I, I wanted to ask a question about um, compensation and benefits for active duty personnel, retirees. Both Jake and uh, Steve did address this explicitly. Um, and, and the question really comes down to this. You know, Gates once said famously that uh, healthcare costs were eating the Defense Department alive. I was reminded of a comment by a colleague uh, who said that General Motors was fast becoming a pension company that happened to build cars on the side. Um, will the US military uh, become analogous to GM, a pension and healthcare organization that happens to occasionally fight wars? Um, or to put this even more succinctly, is there any alternative, a realistic alternative, to reforming these healthcare costs, or will it literally eat uh, the budget alive. And I'm, I'm particularly grateful to Jake. He referenced 
um, the study they're working on now, sustainable preeminence raises this issue and then puts it off to one side, says it's extremely difficult politically to deal with this problem. Uh, and I'm encouraged to hear that you're working on this for a subsequent study. I'm looking forward to that. But I'm wondering if any of the three of you would long, elaborate a little bit more. Uh, is this something that absolutely must be done, uh, uh, notwithstanding the political difficulty of this? Sure. I, yeah. Um, I, Chris, I, I do think it absolutely has to be done. It has to, you know, it is going to be a difficult conversation, but that doesn't mean that uh, if we avoid the difficult conversations, uh, we end up with a um, a trillion dollar deficit and sixteen and a half trillion dollars in debt. Uh, and so, I mean, I think there are ways that you could do this. I mean, some of it is is tying the uh, the VA and the uh, and the DoD healthcare systems more closely together, doing uh, some more some more overlaps. Uh, in areas like that, we often have competition even between the two uh, departments. Um, I think that also we do have to evaluate the 20-year the, the, the retirement and, and how that, uh, if that is still a responsible model. I mean, obviously, we can't break the compact that we've made with, with people, but we can reevaluate and look at, is that responsible? Is the, the, the level of retirement pay, is that appropriate? And those are questions that I think that, that have to be asked, and, and, and the service members and the, the uh, civilians at DOD need to be having those conversations. And then lastly, you know, the DOD healthcare doesn't operate in a vacuum. I mean, they have the same uh, costs. I mean, the increase in pharmaceutical costs, the increase in healthcare costs. And so as, as a nation, um, trying to get a handle on this would have, a, have an impact on uh, just generally on um, uh, healthcare costs and trying to and help DOD in that respect as well. So, I mean, those are just some general areas, but I, I think that people have been too afraid to have the conversation or even talk about it because they feel like if they, uh, if they say anything, then they're, they're cast as being soft on defense and they don't care about men and women in uniform and they don't care about people who volunteer to go into harm's way and, and, and fight our country's wars. And I just don't think that's responsible and I don't think we can afford to do that anymore. Barry, you want to add to that? Can I just add, it's... Um it's like uh, reforming civilian entitlement programs. Small changes make large differences when you look over a 10-year period, and small changes um, implemented gradually don't hurt the, right. the people being affected. But I would point out that uh, there's much more savings to be had by utilizing personnel more efficiently, and that's less difficult politically, I think. And everyone's pointed out the growth in the civilian workforce and the contractors, and I'd add that the military uses its own people quite inefficiently in their reductions possible. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can follow up on that point, um, both the Stimson study and the CNAS study uh, explicitly addressed uh, reductions in full-time civilian employment. In fact, uh, the, the Stimson study estimates about $200 billion in savings from, going, from reducing about 100,000, mainly through attrition, in uh, full-time civilian workforce. Steve, your study focuses on contract personnel but doesn't talk about full-time civilian employees. You, do you want to explain your reasoning there and, and what, what might explain the differences between your study and, and the Stimson and, and CNIS studies? Well, the, uh, the, the contractor numbers largely came from a separate uh, work that uh, Project Government Oversight did and that um, it just looked at basically the, the incredible growth in the service contract personnel over the last decade and then, and then how... Uh, DOD seemed to use that as a substitute for, um, uh, as a quick way to try to get services rather than using the, uh, the, the existing personnel um, in, in, in the Pentagon more uh, and, and this, 
uh, Defense Department more effectively, as was mentioned. And so, I mean, I we we would be happy to entertain and look at. We just didn't look at it, but I mean, we'd be happy to look at uh, uh, more savings that could be done through reduction of civilian personnel. And I think it all comes back down to is using people effectively. And so, you know, we had a loss of, for instance. Um, contracting officers and doing contract oversight. So that led to the idea of doing lead system integrators, um, you know, which brought us Deepwater, which fortunately was Coast Guard program, um, but also, you know, future combat system, other things in DHS, and, and where we had contractors watching contractors and, and clearly uh, uh, increased costs. And so I think that it, it, even within the civilian personnel, it is also about using, as just was mentioned by Barry, more effectively and making sure that we have the right positions filled and we, we, we slough off the ones that are not necessary. Jake, you want anything to that? Or? Uh, no, I'm okay. All right. Well, um, I want to uh, thank you all, and I'll have, uh, there is time for questions as always. Um, uh, please wait for the microphone so uh, the folks who are watching you online uh, or listening can, can hear you. Um, please identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, one more thing, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. That means uh, frame your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, <laughs> please. Um, uh, over here. Go ahead, sir. Colin Clark, AOL Defense. Um, Barry, I'm fascinated by the idea of the services using people more efficiently. <laughs> Can you give us some examples of how they might actually achieve that without changing what they are? Um, well, there's well, one area to look at is the Army command structure. You know, we've moved to the BCT structure, but we retain the uh, other types of headquarters for the Army, which is are unnecessary. A second thing to look at is duplication among the services. Uh, Colin Powell, when he was chairman, tried to uh, uh, get a lead service to do, uh, say, pilot train, basic pilot training or to provide the chaplains or other kinds of support services, which would eliminate uh, duplication in the other services. The third area to look at is the, um, uh, the geographic commands which are just huge now. There's people falling all over themselves, duplicating functions because each of the services wants its representative doing everything that everyone else is doing. So those are three areas I'd start Jake, with. Jake, go ahead. I sure, can I just add something to that? Um, there was a recent DBB study, Defense Business Board study, that um, I forget the number exactly. I think, I don't, I'm not sure the number. I think it's 180,000. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but it's a very significant number of, that they decided of military personnel doing what are essentially civilian jobs. Um, and so if you could switch the military personnel, especially as you have a drawdown of the forces, to focusing more on tasks that are essential for combat and bring civilians in or switch some of the civilians that you would have cut into doing those jobs, I think there's significant potential for savings there. Uh, down here. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Jeffrey Lynn from Senator Angus King's office. I was wondering particularly about sort of balancing the need for, well, trying to make trade-off between, well, possibly inefficient technology right now and even riskier technological risk. Take, for example, over in naval shipbuilding. Right now, we have the DDX coming in at $3.7 billion a whole, but on the other hand, the new 
RLA Berg Flight 3 is probably going to cost as much, so it might not have been such a wise choice to cut the DDX at just three holes in this instance. So can you give me any thoughts on that, please? Go ahead. I, I, I can't speak to the specifics exactly, but the, the principle that we really look at um, in our study is to take some risks in buying, um, like um, Steve talked about, with some of the F-18s and, and some of the systems buying the last generation or the current generation and doing what we call looking for leap-ahead technologies. So spending less of your money, for example, buying F-35s and looking at things like the U-Class uh, carrier-based drone program. Um, that's really, you know, looking at... So, looking at doing the R&D to put that uh, so it can be fielded in the 2020s era instead of having to put all of your capital into a huge F-35 fleet, for example. Uh, yeah, the only thing I'd add is, is that, I mean, naval shipbuilding is, is and will continue to be a, a challenge just because the, cost, the unit cost is so great no matter what you build. And uh, but we've made a lot of poor decisions over time, and and how we pursue that, you know, not necessarily mentioning the DDX, although I would argue that the cost of that would continue to rise if you know if past is prologue. Um, but also, um, you know, you look at the literal combat ship instead of actually picking a winner. You know, we tried to have both, and we actually have two two variants. You know, which are going to have two supply chains, two uh, 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 you know training systems, everything else. I mean, essentially, it was the worst decision that, that we could make, and yet that was because it was the easiest decision because it, it, it kept all the mouths fed. Uh, that's the way they went. And so I think those are, there are real challenges in, um, in naval shipbuilding and making sure that we retain uh, domestic capability, um, but do that in a smart fiscal sense that serves the Navy's needs and, and also uh, serves the nation's needs. If I can weigh in on this, too, you know, I, I'm from Maine. I was in the Navy. I, I know all about Bath, okay? And I know how important it is to, to Maine. Uh, the greatest challenge for shipbuilding, Steve already alluded to it, is, is rising per unit cost. But the greatest threat to the surface Navy is not, is not other surface ships. It's SSBNX. It's the CVN. Um, <laughs> or it's LCS. Uh, and, what you, and, and actually, this is a question I was going to put to Jake, but it, it relates, I think, to the broader discussion is, is that we have uh, eliminated some competition among the services. The COCOMS is a good example where everyone wants a piece of that action. Um, some competition is a good thing, okay, because it forces hard choices. Uh, and I think ultimately we, we believe in competition in other realms. Uh, and, and so there's a balancing act there between uh, compelling the services to make some, some difficult choices, but choices that will actually pay off benefits in the long run. Uh, and I think. Uh, uh, that the, the Navy is, is first in line to make, to make some of those hard choices. Uh, you know, again, to Steve's point, uh, it wasn't the Navy's fault entirely, but yeah, right. the LCS, the, the decision not to decide uh, uh, is, I think, going to be, uh, we're going to be paying for that for a while, to be honest with you. Um, uh, yes, in the back. Yes, right there. Yeah. Catherine Sirks, Americans for Smarter Pentagon Spending. Um, and I apologize if you've covered this because I missed part of the webcast while I was driving here. <laughs> but uh, I've heard a suggestion that one of the problems with the, the allocation of the funding um, for military spending in general is because we have people in Congress making the decisions about what to spend it on. 
as opposed to the people who understand what they really need. And the idea of floating is something along the lines of instead of funding a specific funding for F-35s, for example, what about the idea of something like block grant funding much more extensively throughout um, Pentagon spending being used to, so that the so that at the ground level, the decisions are made by the people who know where the money should be spent. One, one way to rephrase that is, is, is a capabilities-based funding as opposed to particular platform-level funding. Do you, any of you have thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a good idea, but it's not one that, that's going to happen. The Congress has stood in the way of uh, a lot of these uh, personnel reforms. They have stopped the Air Force from retiring lots of op obsolete aircraft that it's been trying to get rid of, but they're not going to give up their power on specific programs. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one simple step in that direction would be creating a standard um, for where the Congress it shouldn't be re-adding in things the Defense Department hasn't asked for. I think increasingly, if, if, if taxpayers and the public just looked at those systems alone, there's, there's pretty large savings by just not adding things the Defense Department didn't ask for. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, and as I mentioned in my uh, talk, that we have concerns about uh, Congr Congress, you know, dictating that we continue to keep... Uh, uh, you know, weapon systems going because they want to keep the assembly line hot, which is the case of like the the Abrams. Um, but the Pentagon's not a neophyte in this whole business either. You know, I mean, for years they sent up, you know, pages, especially the Air Force, pages and pages of the unfunded priorities list. You know, which is basically stuff that didn't make it into the president's budget and that they wanted to get money for, which was essentially a shopping list for Congress to figure out how to feed that. Now, Secretary Gates really put a pretty strong kibosh on that, um, but. I don't think that just telling the Pentagon, here's, here's your chunk of cash, go and send, spend it how you like, is necessarily the right answer either. Um, but I do think that there are ways to reform it and that, that certainly when, when, when DOD is saying, we don't want this, for Congress to say, no, 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 you do, it, it is a problem. And I think the example that you, you cited, the, the tank is a good one, where clearly this is a case where they're funding something that, Congress, that the Pentagon doesn't want. And I, I want to second your point, Steve, that when you call attention to something that in the, in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of dollars in the grand scheme of the budget, it does have a ripple effect in the same way that, that earmark, uh, focus on earmarks can have. Um, here on the side, Bob. Well, thank you very much for doing your patriotic duty to going into the weeds of the Pentagon budget. Uh, and first, I, my, I'm Bob Shadler, and uh, for association for this question, I'll just say I'm a veteran <laughs> who benefited from the GI Bill and uh, VA loans. Uh, but to expand on the chairman's question, if you go far away from the weeds and just look at the field of so-called defense spending, could you not look at it with three overlapping circles? The biggest one is welfare. My GI loan, my VA loan, a lot of the contractors and the way it's, we build things in 48 states when it could be. So welfare is one big chunk. A second chunk is actual defense, missile defense, for example. And a third chunk is offense strategic force projections. And if you look at defense spending that way, it's not politically, doesn't make any sense in terms of politics. 
don't you come to a kind of a different perspective? And it seems to me, uh, you mentioned the fiscal basket case. That seems our greatest threat to our well-being. And then in a particular part of that, how, what sense does a pivot to Asia make when we're asking China to fund a big chunk of that? What, what is our pivot because of our fiscal basket case? So it's, it's a multi-layered question. Thanks, Bob. Thank I think um, I might kick that to Jake first because, again, the hard choices does – and actually, both, both Jake and Barry, both, because your papers do specifically address the pivot to Asia and the rebalancing towards Asia. Um, how do we address this question about the, you know, the fact that we're pivoting to Asia, we're not trying to threaten the Chinese, they're funding our spending? How, how, does, how do we reconcile all that? Well, I think, I think that there's a, a few answers to that question. The first one I, that I would give would be that the Asia, is not, or the Asia pivot is not just a military exercise. Or it really shouldn't be. Um, it's a diplomatic exercise. It's an economic exercise. And in my view, those, uh, foot should go, those feet should go first, um, and, and the military pivot um, should be less emphasized. And I think the reason in particular that it should be mainly a diplomatic and an economic exercise is there's not only threats and challenges in Asia, but there's also opportunities um, for American business um, and Americans in general. So I think that um, that would be my response in particular to the, to the Asia pivot question. Um, and I think also, you know, as you have, once you, once you top, you know, you put a cap on the top line of the defense budget, it's more about reproportioning where you're placing the forces that you have. And so we've committed to put, putting about 60% of our military, especially with the Navy, in Asia um, versus putting it in other places. And I think that if you look at it at the globe and, and you assume a fixed size, that that's probably the right, about the right proportion. I would just add that it's, um, it's taken us a long time to get over the Cold War. And uh, we have way too much in Europe than we need. So the back part of the pivot is withdrawing, uh, reducing the presence in Europe. And that's certainly due and, um, and uh, a way of saving some money. In terms of your three circles, I think it's, it's hard to separate offense and defense except in very specific cases. So I'm not sure how useful that is. And in the first circle, the welfare one, um, as we've all pointed out, there are you know potential savings, uh, treating veterans quite you know, fairly, but yet putting, uh, making some of these programs more reasonably uh, shared, the burden shared more reasonably. I just real quick, just want to add. I mean, it was uh, no less than uh, Admiral Mullen who said that our greatest national security threat is our is our national debt. And then also, uh, Secretary Gates uh, referred that uh, you know if you can't defend the country on half a trillion dollars, you're doing something wrong, which is where we would be at the end of of, of sequestration. Um, and and in reality, you know, our our structure, sort of how we're organized in in, in the Pentagon, you know all goes back to the 40s and really the beginning of you know, our Cold War orientation. So it's, it's in the DNA of everybody who's in the service as far as how we're even organized as, 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 a, as a Department of Defense. And that has to be fundamentally rethought. It's not just about, oh, no, we mentioned about you know, removing troops from, a, uh, from, from Europe, but it's, it's, it's more fundamental than that. And then lastly, you know, there is this sort of axiomatic thing in, in, in DOD where 
when they look at the cuts, it's and it's a, to the Pentagon is this idea of proportionality that everybody gets, you know, that that Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force basically it all moves in in lockstep, which doesn't make any sense really at all as far as how we're doing our budgeting. In some cases, maybe the Army should be cut more, and the and the Navy should get greater increases or or whatever. And that is something that has been kind of ingrained in the culture that if we could actually break that, we could make some real change. I think in your report, you specifically address breaking the service shares, the the, the golden ratio. That's right, right. We do. Yeah, yeah, we right. we advocate that specifically. Okay. Uh, here. Uh, Uh, two hopefully quick questions. Uh, one for Jake. Um, I the hard choices report repeated this uh, line that the uh, chiefs say a lot that we or Leon Panetta and others uh, maybe Gates I can't remember uh, that we can't maintain our current strategy if we cut a big amount of money from the Pentagon budget. And I thought, well, that's terrific. Let's definitely do it because the current strategy is awful. I don't like it. So <laughs> uh, and the uh, so now. Um, and I never understood it, though, because I thought the, the current strategy is so vague and kind of, you know, we're doing a million things all over the place that you could do it for a lot less money. So uh, I never understood uh, why people said we can't do it for $500 billion less, even though I hope we change strategies. But uh, now, as you pointed out, we've cut more money uh, from the defense budget than the Hard Choices Report said. Uh, the Hard Choices Report said if we cut 600 we have to change strategies. Now we've cut more money. So... What does CNAS say now? Does it mean uh, we need a new strategy, or does it mean we need more money, or did you guys change your mind about <laughs> the relationship between those things? And then uh, just a general question uh, for the group. Um, I assume that you, because you didn't say it, that you, none of you uh, particularly agree with Chris and I that the world's a lot safer and we don't really have big enemies to fight anymore with the exception of this idea that we don't have to occupy countries and fix them up. Um, Am I right to assume that since you didn't say it? Uh, and uh, it's sort of striking that there was not much talk here about wars we might have to fight. Uh, you know, there's talks about uh, a number, I think both Barry and Jake talked about shaping uh, and sort of uh, global engagement, but not fighting people, bombing people, which, you know, is really what uh, the Defense Department is about. So is it your opinion that, you know, we're not really doing that anymore and this is sort of a diplomatic exercise or did you just leave that out because it's long in the future. Uh, so, yeah, so I think uh, on your first question, uh, our calculations, again, were, were based on the idea that more or less you, you didn't take on most of the fundamental reforms uh, that now we're working on in our, our third report. Um, and that's really the, the aim of this is to try and and try and square up, you know, can you can you fit your strategy if you do if you do your business defense business better, can you achieve the same strategy with less money, right? Can you defend the nation um, for half a trillion dollars? I think the um, CNS doesn't take institutional positions, but I think uh, speaking for myself and I and I think I speak for my co-authors when I say I think certainly we can do that. Um, definitely. Um, on your second question, uh, assuming we can deal with some of these fundamental reform issues, which we are absolutely, obviously, in favor of, um, due to your second question, uh, no, I don't. We don't mean to, or I certainly don't mean to imply that at all. That um, it's now a diplomatic exercise. I mean, I think if you are, the, you know, the U.S. is the is the global military power, um, and so it's certainly not a diplomatic exercise. That said, I, I actually personally don't agree. Um, you've heard some um, high-level officials talking about this being a 
Dempsey in particular being a more dangerous time than it was during the Cold War. I don't buy that. I think that it's possible that, um, I, th I think that there are maybe more smaller threats, more diffuse, maybe even more complicated, although you could have a discussion about that. Do they add up in aggregate to a bigger threat than the Soviet Union? I, d I don't think so. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. I didn't mean to imply that we wouldn't be taking military actions uh, but the view of our strategy is those actions should be uh, limited in purpose and scope and once achieved not uh, lead to a deeper involvement in, in, in a particular region and that we have the capabilities. Our capabilities are so far superior to anyone else's at this point that we have the luxury of being able to deal with these threats uh, from a distance um, and that we want to maintain that uh, capability advantage by uh, taking the leap in, in technologies rather than incrementally improving current forces. Uh, back there. Mika Oyang from Third Way. Barry, I'm a little surprised to hear you say that you put preference on the classified programs and protect, would protect them from budget cuts, given A, the classified programs don't have the same acquisition, basic acquisition controls that you have in the white budget, i.e. Nunn-McCurdy, and number two, given all the allegations of executive overreach over a number of years in the classified program area, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about why we should be protecting classified programs and not giving them a hard look as well. Yeah, this was a, a subject of discussion in our group uh, actually, and certainly there have been uh, some examples in classified programs which have been big, big mistakes, but there's also been spectacular successes um, in part because it didn't have the elaborate acquisition processes that slowed them down. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to say. There's an advantage in classified programs in that it's nice that your potential adversaries don't know everything that you're going to be uh, putting on the table in the future. But um, from my own experience, and more importantly, the experience of the people on this group, um, the black programs are what produce our, our greatest technological advantages. I mean, there is a certain irony there. To, we've already addressed this. Uh, to the extent that we think some of the complications and the inefficiencies are created by Congress kind of, you know, mucking around, uh, then the irony is that the, the, the black budget. But do you have a different perspective on this than maybe Barry does? I, I'm well, I think that, that we're all for transparency and budgeting, obviously. And so the more that we can know about that without maintaining it, being classified and controls. And it's not like Congress doesn't know what's going on in right. the black budget. I mean, right. they, they, they do have oversight over that area. But they area. don't boast about it, right? Because the, the, the point no. is that when they're, when they're boasting about, yes. I gave money to this shipyard or I gave money to this base or I saved this base, that's, that's a political in, uh, uh, exercise. Whereas when they give money quietly, there is no political crowing about no, it. True, true. Extent. Although, I, you know, I would, I would look at um, Duke Cunningham, uh, who traded his pinstripes for prison stripes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he had access, and that was part of where he was doing some of his, uh, his, his dirty work. And so it, it's just, it's, it, there's a tension there. And that's something that you have to, 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 to resolve, and that uh, there needs to be a, a accountability. But I can understand, you know, obviously there is a benefit of, of having this being secret.
Just to clarify, I don't think prisoners actually wear stripes anymore, but that was a clever, <laughs> that was a clever line. Hey, you uh, know. The orange jumpsuit is the new one. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're in the back. Yes, sir. Brad Riker, I'm one of those bloated uh, government bureaucrats you were speaking about. <laughs> speaking about. Question, uh, when I came here, I expected to hear a little more strategic thinking, a little commentary about broader strategies rather than specific uh, detail that you've spoken to eloquently. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have a question for you. Uh, what is your, Mr. Bluckman and Mr. Stokes, both perception of air-sea battle in the realm of the Department of Defense mm -hmm. concepts in dealing with <clears throat> emerging A2AD capabilities of uh, some countries? Good question. Uh, either you want to take that? Sure. Um, I mean, so air-sea battle is an operating concept. It's not a, it's not a strategy per se. I mean, I think uh, when you look at the level of strategy, particularly with air, you know, where air-sea battles really focus, which is mostly China but also Iran, um, there's the larger political, military, diplomatic um, ballet or competition that's going on in really with with both those countries. Um, and so, you know, air-sea battle is. Um, I think the real challenge with air-sea battle is that you're uh, basically asking to be more, more connected at a time when, um, especially with cyber threats and, 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 um, and other areas, that you're, you're basically putting yourself, you're, you're putting more money on where you're at highest risk um, in, your, in your technology. I think that's the, that's the challenge for me from a strategic point of view um, uh, with air-sea battle. And in fairness, this is addressed in the report. You, and you talk specifically about putting your highest priority uh, assets at, at a, you know, in pro closer proximity where there are greater risks. So. And there's a new, you guys just put out a new study on carriers, right? I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But we, we did. The new study on carriers suggests that um, it, it's... Um, it's basically we we start we want to do we want to foster disruptive thinking um, and and really kind of question the fundamental assumptions um, and so you know the paper's worth reading I didn't I didn't write it but what it says basically is um, you know should the should the aircraft carrier specifically aircraft carriers with F-35s on the decks be the capital ship and the capital plane of the Navy and Air Force respectively um, especially in light of anti-access threats specifically um, anti-ship ballistic missiles and I think it it makes a, a, a pretty provocative case that uh, you know it's a pretty basic um, calculation, which is to say that the missile range is uh, longer than the the uh, plane's range, um, and that poses a fundamental problem. So, Sarah, do you have anything to add to that? Or? No. Uh, here on the aisle there, and then I'll get you in the back. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, Richard Marquez, federal government. To Oh, sorry, uh, Richard Marquez. Uh, to pull on the question just a little bit more about this stretch goal for perhaps breaking the golden ratios and then your discussion about the carrier paper, which was very uh, persuasive as well, is there a stretch goal to perhaps see more of a joint force rather than a specific service force that's more capability-driven, one that could be more flexible and agile across the entire globe rather than specific COCOMs? So the idea that is a joint force is more nimble outside the U.S. rather than in specific regions is that a stretch goal for a lot of the discussion here? Because once you do the reforms, there is a chance that it could always creep back up simply because the original pre concepts are in place. Don't want to take that? Um, well, no, I think that, that you know, it kind of goes to my point about, you know, sort of fundamental rethink and that what we want to see happen and what the, uh, the former uh, deputy defense secretaries were calling for. I think those are the 
it, it, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, these are very entrenched bureaucracies that have been fighting these the, the sort of a bureaucratic trench warfare among them for, for a long time. And so, but I think that that certainly is, is, a, is a laudable goal. And the more that we can move towards that, and as Chris has mentioned, you know, really looking at capabilities rather than, than necessarily assets or even, even, even forces and what we're trying to accomplish, yeah, so much be the better. And I think we would have a much more efficient, agile, effective uh, um, Pentagon or Defense Department. Uh, in the back. Hey, thanks for doing this, guys. Uh, Stephen Miles, Win Without War. I'm struck uh, that next week is the 10th anniversary of the start of the Iraq War. And while it resides outside of the DOD's budget, uh, one of the largest cost constraints on the federal budget in the coming decades is going to be the legacy costs of the decision, not just through the Iraq War, but the Afghanistan War. And I'm wondering if you guys could comment on the constraints they're going to be put on the federal budget writ large and how that might impact spending at the Department of Defense um, by growing veterans' costs and other legacy costs from the last decade of war. I, I can speak to it just just shortly. I mean, I think I think you certainly put it right. Right there, there were big strategic choices made, uh, and that I think certainly up front that the budgetary implications weren't taken into account. And and we've made these promises. We need to keep them, particularly with regards to health care, um, and it, but retirement benefits as well. And, and to really do what we need to do as a society, protect. Um, those who fought there, and that's going to put pressure on other parts of the federal budget. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we made a promise, and we have to st we have to stick with it and, and deal with it in other ways. Um, back back when the uh, Iraq War was about to start, we were uh, foolish enough um, to try to estimate the cost, um, and uh, um, we were way low, just like uh, <laughs> everybody else. Although we were we were closer to Larry Lindsay than uh, uh, than than uh, Mitch Daniels. Um, <laughs> But nevertheless, I mean, it did get to the point, which is also where we're talking about, you know, looking at the, that we, we have to be, we have to look at strategy from a resource constraints, that it is not unlimited. Um, and so it, it, that is some, one of the stark, uh, what you just outlined is one of the stark reminders so that we have to look at, 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 at budgets as well as what we're trying to accomplish and that and, and make sure that they they match and they marry um, because yeah we're 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 stuck with that decision and we're stuck with the legacy costs and and it's going to be it's going to be tough and it's going to have a major impact i just said um, an idea my colleague Russ Rumbaugh has, has uh, written about which is uh, to avoid situations like this in the future the congress should consider a war surcharge an automatic war surcharge, and that when we do um, uh, go beyond uh, planned expenditures on the military, there is an automatic surcharge on the income tax to pay for it. So we we don't try to finance our wars through deficits, as opposed to a tax cut, which is what we did in 2003. And I, actually, um, to to sort of add on that is is uh, my colleague General Dave Barno has written a similar uh, piece in foreign policy called uh, uh, a draft that can work. And basically, it's, it's something of a similar idea, not bring back the full-scale draft, but at a certain threshold uh, of conflict, um, basically bring back a small draft uh, so at least every family in the country has a chance of having their son or daughter picked um, to go into it and kind of increase. You know, ultimately, obviously, this is a political decision, um, but I think there's probably a persuasive case to be made that some political breaks on this would have 
would have uh, reigned in the mission significantly. We, 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 we do know, of course, that a small draft uh, is, allows for well-connected and savvy people to have other priorities and to avoid being drafted seven times, as I recall. Uh, so, uh, but I, as, as, as Steve Ellis would say, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I won't. John? Uh, John Mueller from uh, Cato and from Ohio State. I'd like to push Ben Friedman's question a little bit further. Uh, we seem to a lot, have a lot of discussion about defense policy and strategy should be threat-based, and then no one can come up with any threats. Uh, the most recent thing is the commander of the Pacific Fleet saying what he really worries about is global warming, that that would cripple the security environment. Uh, though from the Navy standpoint, of course, global warming would give more ocean and less land, so it'd be to the advantage, presumably. They would have to have longer anchor chains. <laughs> they could solve that problem for at least a f only a few billion dollars per ship. Uh, but the question is basically uh, both uh, Stokes and Blackman, uh, neither of you really, uh, in fact, all three really talked that much about threats. Uh, it, uh, Barry's comment was that Russia doesn't see that much of a threat, China maybe, but not much, and then there's a bunch of problems elsewhere where we don't want to send troops anyway. And in, in the Stokes uh, um, statement, basically, you, you assume there's no near-term major threats. And so the question basically be, uh, why not, why, uh, why is there any reason to have a, a military at all, mm -hmm. or at least one uh, uh, beyond sort of a relatively small, uh, a, a why is there any sense to having a large standing military at all? Can you come up with threats? That, uh, that deal with this? I realize, realize this is sort of a fantasy question, but we are, after all, in Washington, D.C., so it should fit right <laughs> uh, Fact-free zone, yes. Well, there are some real threats. There's this uh, crazy man in North Korea, uh, for example. Fortunately, the South Koreans are quite capable and with our support should be able to handle that quite well. There's this possible contingency in the, against Iran, which I would certainly hope we'd be smart enough to avoid, but that's a potential. But the greater reason to have military forces is to prevent bigger threats from emerging or to become more real. Um, China is a growing power as its, military, as its economic strength continues to increase. It will increase its uh, military forces, and that uh, will frighten our allies, and uh, we need to um, hedge against the possibility that the situation in East Asia particularly deteriorates. That doesn't mean we need to spend what we're planning to spend. I don't particularly personally support that, but it does support a substantial military capability, I think. I, I would agree with Barry on that, and I have nothing to add. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, what I've said, I mean, just to, to throw one out there, uh, distributed denial of service attacks, which is the, you know, the most common referenced uh, cyber attack, which is thankfully yet to uh, cause even a single casualty, let alone a single fatality. Um, you don't deal with those by aircraft carriers. You don't deal with those by any of the platforms in the current military today. Not a single one addresses that challenge. Um, now, that's not an argument for shifting, you know, $100 billion into, into cyber either, but it, it suggests that there is still a huge disconnect between what we believe to be proximate actual threats 
again, I'm, I'd much rather fight a cyber war that it doesn't result in any casualties than the one we were preparing to fight against the Soviet Union, which would have resulted in the extinction of the human race. Uh, you know, that's better uh, than, than what we were dealing with back uh, in the bad old days of the Cold War. Um, uh, there still is a huge disconnect between the capabilities that we have and the threats that we're uh, addressing. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're just scratching the surface, right, of trying to, to get at some of these things. So I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you all for your questions.